0: Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event originally occurred at the AWP conference in Chicago on March 3rd, 2012. The recording features Jimmy Santiago Baca, Linda Hogan, Pam Houston, and Matt Johnson. You will now hear Alison Granusi from Blue Flower Arts provide introductions. Welcome, everybody. Having a good conference? Yeah. It's Saturday. <laughs> You're all tired. Um, so again, thank you for coming to our fiction reading. Uh, charting unmarked terrain fiction at the borderland. Um, uh, as uh, Amber said, I'm Alison Granussi, I'm the President of Blue Flower Arts, which is a Literary Speakers Bureau. We represent authors and filmmakers for their readings and appearances. Uh, we have a booth in the book fair, uh, booth number 400, if you have a few minutes and want to stop by before you leave. Today I'm delighted to bring you an ensemble of Blue Flower Arts clients for provocative voices in contemporary fiction. Jimmy Santiago Baca, Linda Hogan, Pam Houston, and Matt Johnson. Uh, I'm going to introduce all of them now up front, and they will be reading in that order. Uh, Charting unmarked terrain, fiction at the borderland. The human mind can be as wild as the landscape it inhabits. By exploring the untamed natural and the wild cultural landscape they hail from, each of these authors chart the hidden dimensions of what it means to be human. While taking their readers on an adventurous ride of the imagination, they offer us new perspectives on notions of identity and selfhood and what it means to be free. Living in the interstitial lands between cultures, heritage, and races, their characters find their way through both loss and redemption to find not resolution, but the ever-expanding questions of how to better move through our journey on this earth. Jimmy Santiago Baca has lived his life at the borderland. Born in New Mexico of Chicano and Apache descent, he was raised first by his grandmother and was later sent to an orphanage, a runaway at age 13. It was not until Baca was sentenced to five years in maximum security prison that at the age of 21 he began to turn his life around. There he learned to read and write and found his passion for poetry and for language. After living his first 25 years in the system, last year marked with the publication of the Isai poems, 25 years and one day that he has lived outside the system. He is the author of the memoir, A Place to Stand, 12 Books of Poetry, and the novel, A Glass of Water. Following a family of young immigrants from Mexico, a glass of water takes us deep inside the tragedies unfurling at our country's borders, providing, as one reviewer claimed, an antidote to the dehumanizing discourse in Washington. Linda Hogan is a Chickasaw poet, novelist, essayist, playwright, and activist and she is widely considered to be one of the most influential Native American figures in the American literary landscape. She is the author of many collections of poetry, two memoirs, and the novels People of the Whale, Mean Spirit, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Solar Systems, a finalist for the International Impact Award, and Power. Image Journal writes of Hogan, To be human, according to her vision, is to be situated on the planet and to be sensitive to its moods, its angles, and to its secrets. In Pam Houston's newest novel, contents may have shifted. We travel across the globe with the narrator, also named Pam, as she searches for what? Understanding, a sense of peace, love, spiritual fulfillment, while the quest may be for all of these things, the greatest journey she undertakes is not to Alaska or Tibet or the kingdom of Bhutan, but it is into the unmarked terrain of the heart. I know all about the anatomy of restlessness, declares Pam early on, then later finds herself reflecting how did I ever think I'd get to freedom without my arms swung open wide? Houston is also the author of the novel Sight Hound and two collections of stories, including Cowboys Are My Weakness. Matt Johnson takes us into the ultimate land of whiteness in his novel Pym, a comic, epic journey under the permafrost of Antarctica and beneath the surface of American history. Publishers Weekly wrote, Social criticism rubs shoulders with cutting satire in this high concept narrative. Pym is caustically hilarious as it offers a memorable take on America's racial pathology and the whole ugly story of our world. Or as one of his characters declares, upon reaching their destination after arduous travel, or should I say trudging, I saw that there was nothing out there no sign of an eco-habitat, no sign of life, nothing. What are we going to do now, Garth? I asked, searching around for salvation and seeing nothing but snowdrifts. Born to an American, Irish-American father and African-American mother, Matt Johnson writes primarily about the lives of African-Americans. His graphic novel titles are Dark Rain and Incognigro. I'll leave you now with a slightly paraphrased quote from Jimmy Baca's A Glass of Water. As the words come forth from these hearts strung together like grains of rice, to people holding out their souls like wooden bowls, may these words feed some deep hunger in your hearts. Please welcome. Welcome.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. I wanted to thank uh, um, Allison for inviting me. Um, she pulled me away from New Mexico to come here. And I wouldn't do it for anybody else, I don't think. I, Allison and Ofer, over the years, have, have displayed extraordinary and enormous amounts of love for me, because I need love. Being a, being a parentless child and Allison has always been there for me so I strongly suggest uh, Blue Flower Arts is an amazing, an amazing group of people that, that have furthered the careers of many of the writers and poets that I know including myself so thank you very much Allison I know for you the best there's nobody, you're unrivaled uh, their booth is, I said, 400 down in the big exhibit hall you must go there and don't let them carry any books home with them. Uh, this is from Casimiro. This is a, a it's a border book. I live in New Mexico. A lot of people have died. A lot of people continue to die. And uh, like uh, other friends of mine have said, it's an oxymoron. It's just um, all the Mexicans are much older tribes than we have here. But the Mexicas, the Mayans, the Aztecas, and they, they, they continue to kill them off. A lot of women, yeah, a lot of young women. And anyway, this is Casimiro. he's 14 years old, and he's come to this country. He's from the Raramuri tribe, but Mexican. Um, and he, this is how he discovers his, his wife, how he meets his wife. He's run away from Mexico because he killed a banker trying to possess his parents' house on foreclosure. But, this was January 2006, Casemiro was. Uh, she's already dead. They killed her. But he's reminiscing how he met her. Casemiro was burning brush and tumbleweeds. Oh, I, I got to say one more thing before I start. Uh, Franski from the Sun, the editor and publisher, here, and we've been friends for thirty-some years. When I was in prison, he was uh, he was the first one to ever pay me. He paid me ten dollars for a poem, and that ten dollars could have been fifty million to a prisoner who was only twenty-five years old. So thank you, Sai. And of course, Linda Hogan, I've had a crush on her for God knows how long. <laughs> it's the first time I ever get to actually meet her. I just didn't know how to get a hold of her. I have her picture all over in books or <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> you know us Chicanos, we got that Mexican blood, you know? It excuses all our weaknesses. <laughs> anyway, here we go. Uh, I've had a great time. There's been extraordinary people here. i got to get on with this. Here we go. (laughs) Casimiro was burning brush and tumbleweeds. The night sky twinkled with stars, and the red-hot moon was slowly fading. He raked and scooped up embers in his shovel, glanced at his watch. It was a little after 5 a.m. He stepped near the heat, and the crackle of the flames pleased him. And within the hour, he finished scorching the northeast corner of the field and started banking smoky mounds of burning ash. He privately begrudged God for allowing Nopal to have been butchered so savagely. She deserved a lot better than that, he thought, and he knew the proper way of enduring Nopal's absence was through prayer, but it didn't do much to alleviate the melancholy, the chronic melancholy. His Catholic faith offered little relief, and the only way to tolerate her absence was to work, work, every single day dawn to dusk until he fell. His stomach churned with the memory of the crime he had committed, in Mexico. It was a curse that followed him, and he often wondered, was it because of that that his wife was murdered? The crime had trailed his footsteps to America like a scorpion in the dirt, a white one under the sheets, a clear one in the water basin he washed his face in every morning, a red and green scorpion in the rows of the chili plants he worked and picked, and a golden one in the blistering sun of his brow, the poison of its many stings settling in his empty heart every day. The last Sunday afternoon of her life, they'd varnished the floor and stained the paneling in the Pullman car they called home. Nopal was humming her favorite corrido, which she had written about coming to America when she was 16. In September 1983, in the village of Villa de Alonso, Casimiro was given the gruesome task of pitching corpses on the carts and hauling them down the crematorium. The village had almost been wiped out from some kind of strange virus. The work done, he put his torch to the roof timbers of homes, and as the flames devoured houses, they shredded every aspect of his own identity, reduced his previous life to a meaningless mound of smoldering ash. And it was an obvious sign. God's message was to start his life anew. And so invigorated with a renewed faith that better things lay beyond the horizon, he bid the remaining inhabitants adios, and he left. And that was not the only reason he left. He remembered his father saying, Sometimes a man is so poor, all the pride he has in the last cigarette he's smoking. And it was true. A day or so into the trip, he sat on a boulder and smoked his last cigarette, feeling a little pride that he had escaped, inventing a story in his mind in case he needed to explain himself to authorities. And though he had tried to bury the incident in the ashes with the houses in his village, each dawn, the pistol and the man's expression when he shot him carried charred his mind and his heart and he could sniff the air every day and breathe it into his lungs. The crime was his burden to carry in life, carry alone until he died, keep it close to his heart until no one, lest his two sons inherit the affliction. He sensed, however, that the curse had already taken what he valued most in life, his wife, Nopal. He coughed now as the field smoke blew his way. What do you think, pajaritos? Was it my fault? Is it not so? He asked the sparrows skimming the blackened field, referring to the fact that he had saved Nopal that day, married her, and had children with her, only to have her taken from him. The sun was coming up, and he resumed tending the burn line. He appeared dreamlike, an aging five-foot-six silhouette against a blushed horizon, a shadow wearing a dirt-stained cap to shade his eyes from the smoke, a denim collar pulled up around his ears, waistline riding high in khaki trousers stuffed into his oversized boots. The bandana that he was wearing was the one that Nopal used to wear in her hair when she picked chili. The breeze spiraled around as he sifted over a flash fire, dowsing flash points as they materialized. Now and then he blew on a twig to get the flame, carrying it to redirect and control the fire's widening line. Nearby, prairie dogs and black-footed ferrets bolted across his line of vision. Panicked quails chirped, rattlesnakes melted, scorpions squirmed to cinders. He heard a hiss, a squeal, and a rack attack, wreck attack sound, which he believed was a spirit humoring itself at his expense. He watched as the, as the spirit twitched its windy tail. He took a water bottle from his coat pocket and gulped it, snorting phlegm out through his nostrils and spitting until the saliva was clear and clean. He watched as the wind spirit skimmed the ground. He was 39. He had been in America 23 years, but it seemed like he had arrived only yesterday. Leaning on his shovel, mesmerized by hundreds of lit embers, he retreated into memory. I am standing in the desert, looking around, expecting something to happen. It's very strange and confusing. I walk most of the time at night, but I decide to walk through it at daytime. Soon I see an object in the distance, and I turn in the direction, thinking hopefully there might be a person. It would be refreshing because it's been weeks since I talked except to myself to the coyotes, or to God when I pray. I hurry to reach it so I can rest under the shade. The heat is unbearable. What is it in the middle of nowhere in the desert out here? Is it a plane crash or maybe a miner's shack? Or maybe God's will tell me the purpose of sparing me. And I'm finally in front of this truck. And I smell the foulest odor I've ever smelled, and I want to get as far away and keep on running until I turn back, and I don't see anything but the desert again. And I call out, God, adios, por favor, ayúdame, adios. And I hear a single little voice, and I think it's my imagination, and God's voice sounds very strange right now. I can hear it again, weaker. And I say out loud, is this really happening? Dios, háblame, por favor, are you people really people? Can you hear me? Are you really there? I'm here, and the sun's above, and the air's still, and I walk here a little while ago, and then I take a rock, and I break the lock, and I push the big door, and as it goes back, sunlight floods the dark space of the truck back, and there's chicken wire blocking access in the back part of the truck, and I try to move it, and I handle it roughly, and I swing the screen away. There's another barricade of plywood and cardboard siding, and I shove that barrier to the side, but the smell's unbearable, and I have to turn for a moment to puke. And then I fall to my knees, praying as fast as I can for God to know that I wasn't involved in this crime. It was not me. And then uncontrollably, for some reason, I start to weep. And I want the poor victims to know I'm here. I'm here to help you. I want them to hear me. And my crying grows louder into groaning. And through the tears and the groans, I shout prayers, Dios, ayúdame, por favor. No soy yo. Yelling words like a madman turning around on my knees in circles in the dust in the desert until the voice comes again. And I can't breathe. I'm lightheaded. I'm going to fall down. I'm feeling that I'm going to pass out. I'm thinking I'm lost in this other kind of reality. Where am I? I look around and I beg the angels, please protect my soul wherever I'm at right now. And I hear the voice and it's a woman's voice. And my mind's gone blank and I can't think of what to do because it's just, everything's overwhelming. Maybe I got hit over the head. Maybe I fell down. Maybe I'm having a nightmare. And maybe I'm really asleep and I need to wake up and get on the road. But I'm too exhausted to raise myself, and I can't come up with an answer, and it scares me. I try to tell myself, Wow, Casimiro, do not be scared, no te preocupas, hombre. And then there's an answer for everything that happens. And I'm trying to move, and I'm trying to speak, and I'm trying to do something to move an inch with my feet, or raise my arm, or move my fingers, any motion. But I can't do anything. And I pray again to God, help me decide what to do next. And little by little, I start to move first my fingers and then my toes and my feet and my hands. And I turn my head and I see bodies. Bodies on top of bodies, twisted and bloated, left in this truck by some coyote to die. Piles of rotting bodies tied with ropes, drenched in intestines and mucus, neck metals, rosaries. Little tiny babies. Women, men, gunny-sack belongings strapped to the backs infested with insects. And my whole body seizes up, speechlessly petrified where I'm standing, but in a panic and with great, great effort, I pry one foot up. I step forward until I grip the ledge of the truck, and I squint intently at the dark in the back, and I see... A small, tiny hand move. I see as I search for God's voice. And I find her alive. Thanks.
2: I'm sure, can you see me down here in front? I also thank Allison very much, thank you for organizing this, and um everyone who's here, thank you. My friends, my sister Deborah over here, and Jimmy, I wish you'd told me that you had a crush years ago because I could have had some self-esteem in my life. <laughs> and Pam, you have been very, Good and kind and supportive to me also in the past. Thank you. Um, I'm going to read a novel excerpt from something that's unpublished, and this section is... Uh, it's. I'll just tell you a little bit about it so it's not confusing. Hopefully I have the right section. I did everything to be organized. Um, it is about the last of a tribe, the last woman, the last girl, child, whose father just died of tuberculosis after being, the two of them being discovered together after hiding in a forest from people discovered by fox hunters, British fox hunters and colonizers of where they live. And as you know, uh, New tribes are being discovered daily, so this is not set in the long ago past, and um, much of the story is going to be about her daughter. So this is the older woman telling the story to the daughter, and it's from a new novel. It's not yet published, but I do have a new book out called Indios. It just just came out, so I don't know if you have copies back there, but it's from Wings Press, and they do have copies downstairs, so... I'd be happy. I'm signing after this at two thirty. I'd be happy to sign for you for that. And this is called burn talker. I live in Oklahoma, and even though I don't sound like it, and uh, there is an Appalachian uh, uh, history, a healing. It's called burn talking and so even doctors go to burn talkers when they're badly burned and people speak to the burns and they talk to the burn and it, it comes from the Appalachian areas and they are it's used as highly effective this girl uh, has been in a museum she's seen what happens to bodies in a museum and she burns her father's body after he dies so he won't be in a museum and In the meantime, to protect the burning of his body, she is burned because she has to stand there to keep his body on burning from all the people who are trying to stop it and to take him back. And so Lisa becomes her guardian later, but in the meantime, she's the burn talker who comes to help the girl who is herself burned. Burn talker. I had a private entrance at the end of a road with plants and vines. It was a hill of plants with a dark gray door going into the earth. I kept as far away from the general population as I could in those days, away from crowded streets not to attract any attention. Mrs. Willis beat on my door one day calling my name. She said it was an emergency. It's the girl, she's burned. The doctor had called me already to help her, your mother. She was burned badly, they said water dripped from the leaves above mrs willis as she watched me fold my clothing and put things in order she talked to me all the while about your mother i picked up my herbs to leave she followed as i walked with my large flowered bag finally at the foot back footpath she stopped she wore no shoes the brambles and broken glass were in her way but when i looked back she waved Let them know I'm on my way, I said, in case they were anxious and called. I had seen your mother before. I watched her from hidden places near where they kept her. I watched for some time to be certain they treated her well. She was their source of income, but she was the source of my heart. She was so like a tendril, a new plant. Vulnerable, a child subjected to treatment that had one devising methods to kidnap her. The fire had passed entirely without our knowledge. Even though, like everyone on the islands, we knew the Manhattans. They had a mixed reputation, philanthropists, philanderers, drinkers, art buyers who didn't pay, people on the way down who pretended not to know it and entertained too often. Even before I arrived, I could feel your mother, the child, crying inside the house. I didn't need to hear her. I felt it in my bones. And then... Outside, near a stand of trees, I saw the burned mattress and blackened bed frame. On the long grasses, a ticking-covered pillow and pile of charred debris—clothing, books, and papers—all had been hosed down. Then my ears heard her, t- her, too, a wail of pain—not for her own burned body but I have always known the sound of grief too well. I went around to the back door and knocked, customary on the islands in places of seeming wealth. Inside was the smell of cooking. Clara, the cook with rosy cheeks, was wringing her hands. She wanted to follow me from the kitchen. The room with light mingled with wisps of steam and odors of smoke that on another day would have looked like the clouds in our forests. Then the missus came to the dining room. Oh, you are here at last. She looked me over. Come with me. She was chic, bangs, hair cut in a dark bob. She took in my appearance, which was not to her approval. I followed her, reading her mind. What she thought of me, my embroidered blouse, my skirt and flowered bag, my everything, not the kind of healer she'd imagined the best practicing doctor would have recommended for assistance. Even at 1030 in the morning, it was all darkness. You know how your mother hates dark rooms still. Nevertheless, everything was shadowed, the halls, the tables, all threw shadows down like objects on the floor. The place seemed forever uninhabited by daylight or morning air, but at least I heard the sound of hammering, which I always believed to be the sound of new beginnings, buildings, new starts. Mrs. Manhattan tried to prepare me for what I was going to see, but I already smelled the burning flesh. We've moved her to a room. It's bare. With some spite, she said this herself. She was, well, strange always, she said about the girl. She burned her own father's body. We don't know what came over her. Previous to that, she was mild, but, as she said again, but she was strange. I noticed she spoke to the girl as if she had died. She spoke of the girl as if she had died. For her, perhaps it was true. I just thank God she didn't burn the whole building. Think of what that child could have done. She fumbled her words nervously, as she did her clothing, playing with the top buttons of the beige silk shirt. I hated her words. I felt what your mother might have been through in that house heavy with great misery. The cook followed us, her hands in her apron pockets, her hair in a bun, straggly at the neck. She became our ally. But who knew at that moment? Libra Manhattan led us past a hallway of art, down some stairs to another hall, and we were there in the nearly bare room where Lily sat, pale, crying, and shaking, cold in the corner with nothing but underpants on, her back visible to us. I started to cry, too, and Clara, the cook. My God, she was cooked. She'd be lucky to survive, was my first thought. She was both hot and cold, shaking, trembling, with something and more that none of us would ever come close to knowing. She cared nothing for her burned back, which so, which was burned so terribly, so deep, I felt there wasn't a chance in hell I could make it any better. I'd have had a better chance if it was hell. For her, it was. All of us, all of it was and had been the entire time she'd been kept there. I set to work anyway. Bring me ice, I told them, seeing that even with all this, even at that, the woman in fishnet hose with the bob just stood wringing her hands at the doorway, watching. The cook, who was crying too, went downstairs to bring the ice and was back so soon I know she ran. I tried to soothe the girl, Lily, such a delicate name. The cook brought a whole tub of ice, so much for her to carry. She was a good-hearted woman and her lips moved as she prayed. I could see that she wanted to stay and see how things would go in the room, but I went to the door and said, You'll have to leave now. And I closed the door, securing the latch. The smell still lingered. I'm going to help you, I told Lily. Praying I told the truth. I never knew what worked through me. It could have been St. Francis, St. Anthony, or any other saint, or God only knows my first lover, Manuel, now probably in the other world. Someone stole page four. (laughs) And they kept it. (laughs) So, anyway, um, this has never happened to me before. (laughs) But I just gave a reading. Anyway, um, the woman comes back into the room and she says, Uh, Mrs. Manhattan, is it an herb you're using? No, ma'am, it's ice and prayers. Oh, is that why you have the little statuettes? Some are plastic, I see. Yes, and some are plaster, but they work. That's all I can tell you, they could be chalk. I'd use them if they worked. Okay, you must leave us now. We have work to do. The door closed, heels clicked outside the steps. From my bag, I took the head of lettuce and the aloe vera, vera, the word for truth. I lay the lettuce leaves on your mother's back. It is the one thing most like flesh. It breathes and does not stick. I learned this from my great aunt who had 18 children. She said butter didn't work. She didn't know why they used it. I worried she might get infected, being a girl not immune to this world. She was susceptible to all the ills of humans. Her father had grown sick almost as soon as they found the two of them. When I reached toward her, it felt like a cloud, even though it was a hot, humid day even though she was burned and should have felt warm. I felt the coolness and wetness of a cloud. I remembered that they, her people, had once been called the cloud people. My father had passed on some of their story to me. He said they could sing the clouds toward them. And so I reached through the cloud to touch her. She held a blanket to her naked front and she wept again, but it was not about pain. It was grief for her father, even though she smelled charred. Yet there was also the fresh cloud smell. This is good, I thought. It gives her a better chance. It is coolness. But I think that she had gratitude at being touched with care by any other human being. This wasn't the first time I saw her since she'd been found. I was haunted by her face, her eyes. I worried about her, and I had been there frequently spying anything to get her away from them. I knelt in my brown skirt. Why I recall, I don't know, just that the skirt was on the dark wood floor, the floor that was once her forest. I closed my eyes to look at this curled up little body, to keep it in my mind. It was like I could see backward in time, the forest with the fern people still in it. The first time I saw her when I found her asleep and covered her naked body with the blue shawl Manuel had given me. I was thinking of what this meant, the way she took back her her father's body from them, standing in front of it, protecting him in death by burning him. It's what she did for him. When I closed my eyes, I saw forward in time also, us driving on, on unpaved roads. It was the first time of late I'd had my abilities, as the kids called them. It's funny, but she saw it too. And she said, you're the worst driver I've ever seen, in her little accent. I laughed. It was true. I couldn't tell her I saw happiness in her life because she no longer remembered what that was. She couldn't even imagine it, but I saw it. She won't eat, said the cook to me the next day. She handed me a plate of the girl's favorite food like I was the be-all, the end-all, and could accomplish anything. Here, try this, all her favorites. A beautiful plate of mango and nuts. She needs water, I said, lots of it. I'll bring you more lettuce. Thank you. This day she lay on a little cot on her stomach. She was lithe, the most flexible body I have ever seen. I checked to see if she was feverish. Then, still on my knees, feeling them hurt on the floor, I handed to her this food the maid had brought, beautiful, perfectly cut slices of mango. There must be a special knife rice with sweet coconut. Your father wants you to live, I said. Your father wants you to tell the story. How do you know what he wants, I heard her think. You are going to have your own daughter, I told her, not knowing why. You are going to be happy. Then, after a long time, a little hand, itself slightly burned, reached out of the curled-up body and took one piece of mango. Keep giving her water, I said to the cook. She's eating. Call me if she stops again. As I left, I said, I'll be back day after tomorrow. Tell the missus, same time, 2 p.m. Would you apply this to her every hour? I gave her a bottle of gel from my plants. You can sleep on, she can sleep on her side, light cover. Call me if she has any odor. It could mean infection. The doctor should give her an antibiotic, so call him and told him I ordered it. The cook was smart and got it that fast, the information. I could tell in my first glance that the missus wouldn't have recalled any of this, even though she came in to talk to me to see if I needed help nor would she have followed through. I said antibiotics and herbs. I went back again and again until Lily, your mother, was sitting up. She healed because sometimes the body will do what the soul doesn't want. Thank you.
3: Hello, um, I too am grateful to Allison and Ofer and AWP for having me, um, and I'm very pleased to be here reading with my elders, my literary elders, but also, just because nobody's mentioned the fantastic Matt Johnson, I thought I better, um, one of the pleasures of the spring has been discovering his work, so I'm very excited to hear him read. Next, in the meantime, this is from Contents May Have Shifted. This is called Delta 55. The plane is gradually but perceptibly descending. It is barely light outside, and we aren't due at Orly until nearly noon. There is an odd ticking noise coming from the wing outside my window. I come fully awake and realize we are listing strenuously to the right. I glance at my seatmate on the aisle. Her name is Rebecca. She is a 26-year-old bank teller from Cincinnati who has never flown before, who has saved for five years to take her dream trip to Paris. I spend most of dinner telling her how much safer airplanes are than car travel, how the 777 has a minimum of three fail safes on each of its major systems, how even if one of the engines fell clean off the fuselage, it is designed to tumble backwards, up and over the wing so that it doesn't tear the wing from the plane. Now, in spite of all my reassurances, we seem to be heading shoulder first into the North Atlantic. Ladies and gentlemen, the pilot says, as many of you are probably aware, we are descending, preparing to make an unscheduled landing into Reykjavik, Iceland. Approximately 35 minutes ago, we experienced an explosion in our number two engine, and that engine is now inoperable. The ticking sound you hear is the wind running through it, spinning the blades backwards, much like a household fan. You can probably also tell that we are tacking toward Iceland, much as we would in a sailboat, as our current engine configuration will not give us full power in a straight line. Now Rebecca is awake and looking at me (laughs) wild-eyed. The man likes a metaphor, I say, and offer a small smile. The light out the window has strengthened and I can see whitecaps on an angry gray sea. I always kind of wanted to go to Iceland, I say, but by now Rebecca is no longer looking at me. She has her eyes closed tightly, has given herself, I imagine, to prayer. We will be landing in approximately 15 minutes, the captain says. Please give your undivided attention to the flight attendants as they instruct you in landing in the brace position. I like that he did not say crash. I like that he's a language guy. The ocean is getting quite a bit closer. No sign of Iceland out my window, and I hope that Reykjavik Airport does not turn out to be a metaphor for fucked. Just when it seems that our wheels have to be skimming the water, land, and runway lights appear, and then more of them, so many lights it is hard to count them, a sea of spinning red and blue, every ambulance and fire truck in Iceland seems to have come out to greet us. Holy shit, I say just before the wheels hit the foam and the foam splashes up and covers all the windows, throwing the cabin in a half-light exactly like waking up in a tent after a snowstorm, and then everyone is cheering as the plane glides to a jerky, sticky stop. Much later, in an upstairs blank space of terminal as we are being fed rice with some kind of yellow chickeny goo all over it by something resembling the Icelandic Red Cross, the crew tells us the reason for the emergency equipment. When the number two engine exploded, it spit jet fuel all over the fuselage. We were a Molotov cocktail hurtling through space, is the way the literary captain puts it. There was no way to be certain that the friction of the tires on the runway wouldn't make a spark and ignite us, turn us into a 90 mile per hour ball of flame. This is chapter 25, Ban Zhang Hai, Laos. My guide Zai and I are standing in the warm mist of a Mekong River morning in the village of Banzang Hai Laos, watching an unusually tall Laotian tend his boiling vats of lao lao, the rice wine moonshine that has put his village on the map. Monkeys scream in the trees above us and a gentle-faced woman stands nearby holding a glass I fear is meant for me. It is slightly after 8 a.m., and in America that would be good enough reason to decline politely, but here in Laos, where decorum is far more rigorous and complicated than it is in America, I'm pretty sure there isn't going to be a way out of drinking the pickled Mekong water that is about to come from the steaming, rusted, 50-gallon drum. I reassure myself that no self-respecting amoeba could possibly live in 80-proof hooch, and quickly down the glass of white I am offered, which gets me another glass, and then a glass of red, which I realize the second it goes down my throat without searing my tonsils isn't nearly as strong as the white. I am seized with regret, flooded by premonitions of feverish vomiting in a Laotian healthcare facility. I do what any sophisticated world traveler would do and stuff an entire antibacterial wipe into my mouth (laughs) and during the tour of the brightly painted temple, suck every drop of juice out of it I can and swallow. (laughs) Outside the temple, a beautiful woman is making ferns and bougainvillea out of paper and I buy a small bouquet from her and ask if I can take her picture. She says something to Zai, and he translates. She says she should take your picture because you are the beautiful one. And I can tell by the tone in his voice that he thinks she is mistaken. (laughs) Zai is the most formal guide I have ever had in Asia, which is saying a great deal. He had been a monk for three months at 18. Then he became one again for one day last year when his mother died so he could carry her body, he says, to the other side. His English is impeccable except that he says electric city when he means electricity and comfort table when he means comfortable, and anyone can see why he would think that was correct. At least twice a day, he says, if I am not speaking right, you will please graduate me, but I rarely do. I'm pretty sure I have managed to eat the antibacterial wipe clandestinely until we are back on the boat heading downriver to the magical city of Luang Pravang, and Zai says, Have I told you yet how the Buddha died? When I say no, he says, he was invited to the house of a friend for dinner, and they were serving pak. Pak, I say. Pak, pak, he says, mildly impatient with me as usual, and he makes an oinking noise in his throat. Aha, I say, and Zai smiles. He knew the pak was bad, Zai says, knew even that it would kill him, but he ate it anyway because it was most important not to offend his hosts. I guess that's the difference, I almost say, between Buddha and me. But on the off chance that Xi has paid me a compliment, I smile out at the muddy river and nod. This is 59, Tucson, Arizona. I have not been on the property 30 minutes <clears throat> when I am lying on a massage table in a softly lit, frangipani-scented room with a person named Trevor towering over me. I can see, he says that you are doing a lot of spiritual work because look how far you are out in your hair. His accent is vaguely South African, and he has the most impressive unibrow I have ever seen. (laughs) I do not read poetry, Trevor says, because I live poetry. (laughs) He picks my feet up and lets them fall back to the table. May I ask you, he says, why the lower half of your body is perpetually standing in ice-cold water? He means energetically, of course, because the room is warm and my legs are dry. And what happened here, he asks, not waiting for an answer. He has his hand on my leg at the exact place where, when I was four years old, my father threw me so hard against a big oak wardrobe that I broke my femur. The bone healed 40 years ago. I was casted from the tip of my toes to my armpits for months, but Trevor is not the first healer to be able to see what happened. My father, I begin, I am not afraid of your pain, Trevor says. I am not afraid of your grief. I am not afraid of your terror. You want to know why I'm not afraid of your terror? i nod. I am not afraid of your terror because I have gone inside the monster, and inside the monster is pure wonder. Somewhere in this building, my friend Willow, who I have come to Canyon Ranch with, is getting a nice simple lavender scrub and an herbal wrap. (laughs) Willow looked through the catalog, thought, yes, the first night, maybe a nice herbal wrap after all that travel. Pamela, Trevor says, will you tell me your father's name so that I may ask him to excuse himself from the lower half of your body? (laughs) Yes, I say, and I do. Sebastian, Trevor says, Sebastian, you must get out of there. Sebastian, he says, this does not belong to you. He has his eyes closed and his hands tight around my ankles. No, Sebastian, he says more forcefully now. There are no options. We stay like that for an excruciating amount of time. Then he folds my hands across my chest and covers them with his. If you could have only one thing, he says, would you choose peace or ecstasy? Ecstasy, I think, though I'm pretty sure I'm supposed to say peace. Peace is an illusion, Trevor says. I am in the ecstasy nearly all the time now, even when I sleep. (laughs) I think of the composer's lonely bedroom, the terrible black sheets, the clock radio projecting blood-red digits onto the ceiling, his bald head a glinting cabernet color like someone already dead. Pamela, Trevor says, slapping the bottom of my feet with his palms. Yes, sir, I say, out of habit. He's got my wrists now, is stretching them back over my head. No one has ever called me Pamela except my father. You have two glasses, Trevor says. One is completely full and one is completely empty. In which glass is stillness possible? The full one, I say. The questions are getting easier. Trevor now has his powerful thumbs wrapped almost completely around my uppermost vertebra. You can get to stillness through ecstasy, he says, but you can't get to ecstasy through stillness. I think about all the ways the language of the New Age is custom-made for terrorism. (laughs) I think about when a pink mouth opened in a white sky over Davis and I saw for the second time the cupped waiting hands. When one of the doing lines in your life intersects with the circle of your now, Trevor says, what happens? It has to bend, I say, confident. It bends and bends and eventually becomes a circle. Precisely, he says, and releases his death grip on my neck. This is 111, Trenton, New Jersey. Let's say, for the sake of argument, that my back hurts so much because when I was four and in my three-quarter body cast, my mother found it easiest to carry me around upside down like a monkey, using the plaster bar the doctors had fashioned between my knees to keep them for three and a half months, the correct distance apart. And let's say she did just that, until my second to last appointment when the orthopedic surgeon said, you haven't been carrying her around by this bar, have you? And my mother shot one quick glance at my father and said, of course not, no. And it became a funny story the two of them liked to tell together to friends over a couple of drinks. And let's say that when their friends asked, as of course they would, how in the name of heaven a four-year-old breaks her femur, they said that I had somehow managed to pull the giant wardrobe over onto myself except instead of wardrobe they would have said credenza because it would have made us sound richer than we were I still don't see how it would make me feel any better to think of the pain in my hip and spine as anything other than my most loyal and valuable companion the continuous non voice in my ear that says you got out alive and you still get to go no two people who have ever lived love to travel more than my mother and father they gave that love in their fashion, to me. And finally, Istanbul, Turkey. At the Sultan's palace, beautiful long-limbed girl, sexy but not too sexy, lots of brassy hair surrounded by seven or eight international travelers her age. To an Australian boy with acne scars, she says, you are walking through the Topkapi palace with three beautiful women. What more do you want? The other young women are not in the same room of beautiful as she, but they accept the compliment. Don't dare to interrupt. The boy says, maybe if you were all naked, and laughs. One of the other girls, a Swede, says, no, meaning, go fuck yourself, acne face. The brassy-haired girl holds her finger to the Swede's lips, says, my parents taught me never to say no immediately. To men, the Swede asks? To anything, she says. Istanbul is the only major city in the world that is situated on two continents. Since 330 AD, it has been the capital of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Latin Empire, and as recently as 1922, the Ottoman Empire. In the hilly streets, ruin leans into palace, leans into internet cafe. We are in line waiting to get into the harem. Miles of tiled, low-lit corridors and rooms so thick with ghosts of women in captivity you can feel their hair on your arm, their jasmine-scented breath on your face. In contemporary Istanbul, the dervishes have finally invited the women to whirl. In the Blue Mosque, there are 250,000 tiles the color of sky. When the sun comes out, inside is sky and outside is golden. I am 46 years old and ashamed of the fact that this is the first mosque of my life, but later when the evening call to prayer catches me in the garden between the blue mosque and the Hagia Sophia, call and echo, echo and answer, bouncing off domes and turrets that have stood on this hill for 1,500 years, I know faith springs out of doubt like topsoil, and one thing I am is here right now. Across the Golden Horn, where the Bosphorus meets the Sea of Marmara, the Asian part of the city glistens in the twilight. As a candidate for the center of everything, Istanbul beats Pueblo, Colorado, hands down. The gulls are turning cartwheels around the towers of the Blue Mosque and calling like crazy women, Byzantium, I say to them, Constantinople. The circle of my now is wreaking havoc with the lines of my doing. I am learning to say yes, if not always immediately. A sweet-faced Turkish boy, maybe 19, offers me a Kleenex, puts both hands over his heart when I take it, says I look just like his mother when I cry. Thank you.
4: I, I hate going after pam <laughs> um, uh, thank you i i'm i'm last so i am either um be so rude not to thank uh o, o for an Allison or um or i, I just um, am redundant so I'll, I'll go for redundant and also uh thank you so much it's it's an honor to read um with this uh this crew today uh i'm going to read from my novel Pim and um this uh this story that i'm working on. Or this, this book is about a sort of sequel that, uh, to Edgar Allan Poe's narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which takes place in, in, uh, across the Americas and eventually in Antarctica. My book takes place in Antarctica. Um, the part that I'm going to be reading is, Um, the, the protagonist is this professor, he's trying to find out if Pym's story is actually true, and he gets a lead into one of the characters from the book, uh, Dirk Peters, and so he goes and talks to, um, a distant relative of Dirk Peters, um, named Mahalia Mathis, who he finds on the internet. Uh, and I'll just pick up from there. I didn't know that meeting Mrs. Mathis also meant I would be forced to travel from Chicago, to the bleak urban landscape of Gary, Indiana. After thoroughly reading her website, I was under the impression that Mahalia Mathis was a resident of the second city. I soon found out that what I thought was a residential address in Chicago was in fact a post office box, and that her driving directions led me not only out of the city, but out of the state of Illinois altogether. This information arrived at my cottage in an overnight package from Mrs. Massis, along with the elaborate press package that included a glossy headshot of the lady and several print clippings from her neighborhood newsletter, some more than a decade old, all attesting to her numerous creative abilities. I found her residence an hour out of O'Hare without much trouble. It was harder to leave my rental car parked on the street, with its thugs hanging around like concrete bats hanging in caves. Niggas! Mrs. Mathis yelled out at them, and, and she let me into her townhouse, a response which only increased my concern that my rental car was done for, despite the fact that she insisted that this would scare them away for a little while. The home of Mahalia Mathis was elegant on the inside, ornate. It was crowded, too. There were many possessions on display in this house and many, many cats to guard those possessions. (laughs) Mrs. Mathis struck an impressive figure herself wearing a moo moo of green paisley silk and a sparkled turban to match. She was a statuesque woman, both in height and in weight. Aside from an occasionally violent fit of coughing, she didn't look sick or weak to me as she went about her overcrowded house with its many boxes and piles of antiques and random curiosities. She was a hoarder, and I was happy about this, because if this woman had ever possessed anything that was of use to my quest, it was clear she still had it. (laughs) It was in Mrs. Mathis' living room, seated at a large mahogany table covered in antique lace, that we began our discussion in earnest. Tape recorder and notepad on my side of the table, a dusty box marked pictures, on its lid in a handwritten scroll between us. You must realize this man you speak of, Dirk Peters, I interrupted. I I wanted no mistakes about this. Dirk Peters, she acknowledged, with the hand to the side of her temple, as if even uttering those words made her nervous. You have to understand, in my family, we weren't even allowed to say his name No one in my mother's generation talked about him, and that's because no one in her mother's generation did, or the one before that. But why, I asked. Largely because Miss Mathis took a couple seconds off of her opening confession, dabbing her head with a handkerchief repeatedly, even though it must have been barely 60 in the room. I also wear my coat because he is the Dirk Peters, written about by the great author Edgar Allan Poe all those years ago, the one who accompanied Arthur Gordon Pym on his southern adventure. She shot back at me as if I was the fool, but I did not feel like a fool in that moment. To the contrary, I felt brilliant. I hadn't even mentioned Poe's novel before this point. Mrs. Mathis, do you realize this is a major historic revelation, I asked, struggling to contrain myself. It's an important discovery for American literature and for America itself. Why did you keep this secret for so long? In response to my query, Mahalia Mathis made no attempt to hide her disappointment in the poor display of intelligence on my part, for even pursuing this line of questioning. After much eye-rolling and elaborate head-wagging had been completed, Mrs. Mathis finally saw fit to compensate for my lack of intuition. Well, he left that poor white man down there to die, didn't he? Not only did he go along on a mutiny, which would have brought shame to enough to my family name, had it been widely known, but the fact he left that poor white man down there to die on some iceberg to freeze to death. The fact that Arthur Pym was a famous white man just made it worse. Time was, if white folks hear your kin killed one of them, they liable not to let that fact that it was a hundred years ago stop them from getting a rope. Oh, I get it. I see. Right. Why didn't I think of this before? Of course, there would have been a larger real-world repercussions to worry about, particularly as an African American man. And a what? Mrs. Mathers' hand shot down to collapse on my own. And uh, African American man, I repeated assuming I garbled the last of my words in the excitement of the moment. When I said African, again, Mrs. Mathis squeezed my fingers so tight it left me with the impression of being gripped to a blood pressure machine. Honey, I got a lot of Indian in me. I got Irish, and I got a little French too. I got some German, or so I'm told. I even got a little Chinese in me on my mother's side. Matter of fact, I'm sure I got more bloods in me than I knows. But I do know this. I ain't got no kind of Africa in these bones. Mahalia Mathis delivered, poking her naps back under her turban as she snorted at me derisively. <laughs> so he ends up going to, um, an org, she bribes him into going to a meeting with her. I- I'll state before this, we, we gave everybody's lineage, um, and I'm, I'm a descendant of the M- Muskogee Nation, um, and, uh, of the black, uh, Muskogee Freeman, um, I- I'll- Put that out before I read the rest of this. It turned out that Mahalia Mathis was not the only resident of Gary, Indiana, to claim Native American descent. Despite the fact that the satellite city of Chicago was 84% black, there were enough Indians to form a club. And it was to participate in its gathering that Mrs. Mathis had recruited me. The Native American Ancestry Collective of Gary, NAACG, met on the first Thursday of every month at the Miller Beach Senior Center. To my surprise, the Miller Beach Senior Center was not actually in Miller Beach, but in an adjacent community that merely aspired to appropriate the airs of his more reputable neighbor. During our long and illuminating ride, I was simultaneously given a tour of the modern day Gary, complete with a com- t- commentary on its most famous entertainment family, and told the saga of Mahalia Mathers' own family, the Jacksons. No relation. Mahalia's late husband, Charles, had passed a decade before. Charles, Mahalia acknowledged, had indeed been colored. Mrs. Mathis went on to note that both her sons had married white women and that her grandchildren had been spared Charles's burden. It seemed that her sons had also been spared the burden of their mother as well, because it was clear from her tone that she was estranged and isolated even from her own people. Your mother must have been so relieved when you came out, Mahalia Mathis turned in her passenger seat to say to me. Reaching out to lightly touch the back of my neck, where my stringy hair met my fired alabaster skin. I giggled nervously, jerked my head, and eventually the older woman put her hand back to her side again. Once the community center had been entered, it was rather easy to locate the dozen or so NAACG members. This was not because the group looked like Native Americans, to my eyes. They looked like any gathering of black American folks, some tan, most brown. What distinguished this group was their attire. The first man I saw in the room had on a full Native American headdress, a stegosaurus spine of white feathers that reached all the way back down to his moccasins. He was sitting on the edge of a metal fold-out chair, trying not to harm his plumage while he sipped his coffee from a Dunkin' Donuts cup. As I walked in, Mrs. Mathis on my arm, he turned towards us, and in the red war paint he had on his nose and cheeks he spread as a smiled. Others in the room were more muted in their attire, but all seemed to have their flair. By the open box of donuts, a woman wore a casual coat made of simulated Hopi cloth. Over by the blackboard, a tall, slender brother chuckled and chatted on his cell phone, his raised hand in a miniature museum of turquoise fingers ornaments. Past him, a portly man with chemically relaxed hair tied into two greasy ponytails twirled one of those wet ropes with his fingers as he waited for the meeting to begin. The only person besides myself who was not outfitted in some sort of indigenous attire was a brown-skinned woman in a pink raincoat sitting in the father's chair from the door as she read a magazine. But clearly, she was the waiting escort of someone else in the group. Somehow, it had been spread around the room that I was a reporter sent to cover the event. And by somehow, I don't know how Mahalia Masses did it. The folks pleasant and welcoming made their introductions by telling me both their names and their native connections. Tanisa Johnson, Cherokee. Anthony Thomas, Chickasaw. Tyrone Jackson, Seminole. We're so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here to came to record this special day, Tyrone told me. And the others began to take their seats as well and agreed. Well, you know, I couldn't just let this day go by, could I? Historic. The Haley Mathis boomed. Her own hair hot combed back into a Pocahontas bun for the occasion. I whispered to her, I'm sorry, what is today? Today we get our proof. That was my surprise. It will make an excellent essay for you. I know it. Today the truth is revealed at long last. DNA testing isn't just for criminals trying to get out of jail free. It's for decent Indians trying to prove their heritage. It took us a year and a lot of phone calls. and We found Dr. Hollins over at the University of Chicago to do our test for us, part of a program I read about in the Telegraph, bragged Anthony, handing me a cooler in the napkin. All expenses paid. All we had to do was scrape a skew Q-tip in our mouths, and, and they said they would do the rest. I'm going to send my baby to college on this evidence. Just you watch. We tried to join the Sioux Nation a few years back. They had the nerve to turn us down. We'll see about that now. Tanisha humped the tassels, lined her coat, and pants rippled like the legs of a centipede. The others were equally excited, and as they told their stories of ostracization by their respective Native nations, I empathized with their obvious pain. Although they didn't mention it, I imagine walking around Gary, Indiana, dressed in Native American tire had probably led to incidents of other alienation as well. It was out of empathy that I removed a pad from my pocket and began taking notes, half convinced that I just might write an essay about this, That. Maybe I could play at being a pop psychologist. If this Negro and Rick James Sackett could call himself a war chief, then why not? (laughs) Then the brother from the University of Chicago finally arrived. Well, as many of you thought, your tests have proven that as a group, you do have a percentage of Native American heritage. There is a margin of error, of course, but overall, your tests proved to have between 0 and 32% Native American DNA. Between 11 and 64% European DNA, and as for your African DNA, on average then, Tyrone interrupted eagerly, how much native blood do we have? The professor stiffened visibly, put down the chart he was reading from, and and leaned back on the desk behind him. Well, the average, on average you have about 6% six percent native blood among you which is about average for african americans on the east coast for instance six percent six percent tyrone stood indignant that's all you could find is six percent well what the hell is the margin of error six percent the professor coughed into his (laughs) hand. immediately began shuffling his individual results, moving to hand them out just so he didn't have to stand there in the center of the room anymore. As the NAACG members inspected their individual test results, it became clear to me that the natives were getting restless. (laughs) Anthony, for instance, dropped his Boston cream right on the floor and declared, it's scalping time. Mrs. Mathis, clearly trying to keep herself composed as the elder of this village, not even bothering to look at her own results, attempted to calm down the room. Professor, you did say that some of us have 32% Indian, right? You did say that. Well, one of you does. The rest, not so much. The professor, in emotion, offered. Amazingly, his coat was already on when he said this, and most of his papers have been speedily repackaged into his briefcase. Me! came a slight but jubilant voice from the far corner of the room. It was the woman in the pink raincoat who now pumped her fist, staring at a report as if a great bounty had been won. Her round brown face did look like she'd gone to a tribe, but more Igbo than Apache. When I turned back to Mahalia Mathis, she seemed to have aged nearly ten years in as many seconds. Her mouth was agape. Her top dentures clacked loosely down for support. Mrs. Mathis thought the 32% Native was her, I realized. That was the only thing that had let her keep her composure before now. Putting a trembling hand to the folder before her, Mrs. Mathis looked inside, and I peered discreetly over her shoulder. 2% Native, 23% European, 75% African. This last bit I saw when I picked the findings off the linoleum, after Mahalia Mathis collapsed unconscious. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.